You're listening to Crossing Tape, a true crime podcast hosted by a real therapist. Please note that this podcast is separate from my professional work as a licensed mental health therapist, and it is solely something that I just do in my free time as a hobby. All right, let's jump into our next episode. Welcome back to Crossing Tape. I am your host, Mallory, and I'm here again with my friend Cherie as my guest host. You can hello. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be back. We are happy to have you back. Just like uh, normal, the trigger warnings are in the description. If you need to take a moment to pause the podcast, check out the trigger warnings. I trust you to make the best decision for you. Are you ready for our story today? I am. I'm excited. Our banter and discussion will take place at the end of the episode. If you do not want to listen to that, no hard feelings. I totally get it. Mm -hmm. Um, So you are welcome to stop the podcast when we get to that point. All right. So our story today takes place in the small community of St. Joseph outside of Dade City, Florida, Hmm. in 1993. Dade City is a moderately sized city in Pasco County that had approximately uh, 7,000 ish residents in 2020 and in 1993 it had about 5,000 residents. Dade City is about 40 miles northeast of Tampa, Florida and in 1993 this area so the St. Joseph area was really rural. It was considered very rural. Um, It was dotted with orange groves and small lakes and creeks and rivers and stuff Um, and it really and you'll see throughout the story it's really like small town vibes. Um, A lot of farm land. Okay. A lot of a lot of acreage. Jennifer Odom was 12 years old in 1993. She was a seventh grader at Thomas E. Whiteman Middle School, in which she played the clarinet in the school band and spent time with her friends going to dances and having sleepovers. Yeah. She was proud of her perfect attendance record and actually set up her trophies in her room Mm. over her, yeah, over her favorite blue bean bag reading chair. Mm -hmm. We will actually have a picture of this on our Instagram. Was she a Virgo? Was she a Virgo? Mm-hmm. No, she's an Aquarius. Oh, oh, hi. That's oh, I didn't even tell her birthday. Yeah, she was. Um, no, sorry. She is a Virgo. I knew it. <laughs> you did know it. Oh my god. Yeah. Yes, her birthday is um, August twenty fifth. I think I didn't put it in the notes because yeah, yeah. um, I'm not doing a great job at being a Virgo, but I think I'm pretty sure she is. Yeah, August twenty fifth, she'd be a Virgo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she was proud of her perfect attendance record, mm-hmm. and she set up her trophies in her room over her favorite blue bean uh, bag reading chair. Yep. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, what? Nope. Okay. <laughs> Jennifer didn't just love school for the social aspect. She was also really smart. Um, she was on the honor roll that quarter. She dreamed of taking the smarts to the courtroom and becoming a lawyer one day. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. She was described by her mom, Renee, as being, quote, full of life, and she loved water sports. Specifically, she loved barefoot water skiing. Wow. Yeah. I'm impressed. I am, too. And she placed seventh best in the country for her age group. Oh. Yeah. She was the person who would climb on top of, like, the human pyramid as they were water skiing. Oh, I always thought that was amazing yeah. as a kid. Yeah. I still do. <laughs> yeah. As, a, as an adult, you think that's amazing? Yes. Me, too. Yes. yes. Also terrifying. Yeah. Could not be me. She was what the, was she not good at? Wow. I know. Impressive. She was amazing. She yeah. was amazing. Uh, she was close to her sister, her younger sister, Jessica, and would spend her free time making forts and swimming in the mm. creek that ran through their 15-acre property. What a wholesome sweetheart. Her Springer Spaniel Gypsy Aww. was never far behind as Jennifer spent her days outside playing. And Gypsy, we actually have a picture of Gypsy on our Instagram. Um, it's a picture of her in her bean bag with Gypsy mm. there with her. It's very sweet. 
Jennifer's mother said that she regularly told her daughters how to stay safe and what to do if they're in danger. She told them to uh, drop their belongings and run, stating, quote, zigzag the orange groves. I can find you in the orange grove. Oh. On Friday, February 19th, 1993, it dawned like any other winter day in Florida, crisp but not cold. Jennifer prepared to go to school, gathering her textbooks and her schoolwork in her teal backpack and grabbing her black clarinet case. She was a true Floridian, and therefore, even though it was chilly but not cold, she had um, jeans, a white turtleneck, a white hoodie, and then grabbed a red cashmere sweater oh, for warmth. Suffocate. <laughs> but she was, you know, Jennifer was a true Floridian. Mm -hmm. It's February, it's chilly, I'm layering up. Yeah, okay. I'm layering up. She laced up her black boots and hopped into the car with her mom to drive up the 200-yard driveway to the bus stop. She looked forward to this time with her mom as it was their moment to connect before busy days. So every day she'd drive with her mom. She loves would... her mom. Yeah. Yeah, she does. She does. Once the bus arrived, Jennifer climbed on and moved to the back seat where she normally sat so she could wave and watch her mom follow. So her mom would follow the bus um, and then, like, turn off. So she, would, she could sit in the back and she would wave to her mom Renee would wave to her daughter, and she did that February morning, not knowing that it was the last time she'd see her alive. Mm. And then she turned down the opposite street to head to work. So later that day, nine-year-old Jessica, Jennifer's younger sister, was dropped off at her house around 4 p.m. Some reports say 3.30, some reports say 4. When she walked up to the front door, uh, it was locked. Jessica, so Jessica's also, uh, like I, I think I just said this, but she's nine. She's pretty little. Mm -hmm. uh, Jessica was confused as Jennifer usually got home before her, so she walked over to her grandmother's house for a spare key. And the vibe I kind of get of this kind of small area is like um, a lot of families, yeah, like buy big parcels of land, mm -hmm. you know, chop kind it of, up, kind of like how it was like in the olden days, I yeah. would imagine. Yeah. So her grandma's house was walking distance. Once inside, she realized the house was empty, so she got to her grandma's house. She got the spare key. She went back to the house. Um, there was a, a report, one report, and I couldn't find anything to corroborate this, so I, I'm going to say I don't know if this is true, but there was one report that said Jessica kind of assumed Jennifer was like playing a prank on her. So she gets back to the house and she opens the door and she's expecting her sister to be there, but she realizes that the house is empty. So feeling really uneasy, Jessica races back to her grandmother's house and calls her mom. Renee said, quote, right then I knew, I knew it was bad, unquote. Renee started calling around to Jennifer's friends who rode the bus with her. Jennifer would never not show up. She would always call either her grandmother or her mom and say, hey, I'm going to be doing like this today or go to this. She was older sister, did you say? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She's 12 mm -hmm. and Jessica's nine. Yeah. Um, so Renee started calling around to Jessica's, well, sorry, Jennifer's friends who rode the bus with her. All of her friends confirmed that Jennifer had gotten off the bus at her regular time of 2.45 uh, p.m. Renee immediately called the Pasco County Sheriff and made a missing child report. Six days later, they found Jennifer's naked body mm. in a grove of orange and pine trees approximately 10 to 12 miles north of where she went missing. Jeez. Yeah. So what happened then between 2.45 p.m. and 4 p.m. on February 19th? It's a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. That's what the police started to piece together over the next couple days. So once Renee had made the call to the police to report Jennifer missing, they immediately started talking to her friends and all of the, the like the friends who rode the bus. Um, they did talk to all of her friends, but they started with the ones on the bus. All of her friends on the bus reported seeing a quote unquote faded 
blue pickup truck parked on the side of the Jim Denny Road where Jennifer's bus stopped. Yeah. This truck was later narrowed down to a full-size GM pickup truck with a faded light blue color late 70s or early 80s model with a steel bumper and a trailer hitch. They also recall that the truck slowly followed Jennifer as she made her way back down the road to her house. So there's like the main road and then her driveway. If you're familiar with rural areas, oftentimes the driveway is quite yeah. long as well. It's like a road. It's like a road. And so hers was like 200 yards is fairly long. Yeah. Um, so the truck, they remember watching the truck follow her down the road and then down like start to the driveway. Which it must have been house. so uncommon if all of the friends watched that and noted it as So actually, yeah, so there's actually a report, I didn't put it in here, but there was actually a report where many of them didn't think twice about it mm-hmm. because it was such a small community and nothing bad had, ha- I mean, that's like, I feel like it's so typical that's of all these stories. Cliche, yeah. Yeah, but they were just like, oh, it must be someone she knows, it must be someone looking Uncle. for her parents. Yeah. yeah, so they didn't think anything of it mm-hmm. until she went missing. And mm-hmm. then they were like, oh, shit, we saw this truck. Um, So police immediately start looking for this truck. And by that Saturday night, they had stopped hundreds of blue trucks looking for Jennifer. Mm -hmm. Eventually, over the course of the investigation, they were able to rule out 1,500 blue pickup trucks. Wow. Isn't that insane? That's a lot. That's a lot. We actually have a picture on the Instagram of, um, it's from the Tampa Bay uh, Times, of the police searching one of these trucks. They stopped Mm -hmm. every blue truck. It was a big priority. Yeah, we'll hear, we'll talk about it more, but this, like, story was huge. Wow. And, yeah, they really, they really put a lot into this. So over the week, over the weekend, because she went missing on a Friday, both Pasco County and Hernando County had people out looking for her. So, um, kind of where they live is kind of on the border of both counties. Okay. And so they had, they had both counties working. There were hundreds of searchers, deputies, civilian volunteers, local firefighters, her family members, and members of something called the Civil Air Patrol. I'm not sure what that is, but they were there. Mm-hmm. People brought out their horses and their ATVs to search oh. in places, yeah, harder to reach by foot. And the sheriffs had helicopters searching from the sky. The Red Cross was even there to help provide food to the whole community who was searching for her. Literally, yeah. this whole community showed up. Everyone, full Everyone, stop. Yes, showed up for Jennifer. By the end of the weekend, just the weekend... They had searched 60 square miles, and there was zero sign of her. Nothing. By Monday morning, the local police decided to get the FBI involved, because they were like, we cannot find this person. Yeah. Yeah. And they were, so they didn't find anything, so I think they were starting to assume she had been taken out of the state. Mm -hmm. So they got the FBI involved. Jennifer had literally disappeared without a trace. They found no clothes, no jewelry, no footprints, nothing. Because of what her mom had told her to do if she was ever in danger... They had started to think that maybe whoever took Jennifer was like wasn't perceived as a threat until too late. So if you remember, her mom said, "Drop everything and run." Mm-hmm. And so the fact that they didn't find anything, they thought, okay, so maybe this person, she either knows them or she didn't perceive them as a threat until it was too yeah. late. Yeah, and she couldn't drop her stuff. That Monday, the community was super shocked and scared. Obviously, nothing like this had ever happened before, and everyone was concerned. Obviously, that it would happen again. Mm-hmm. Uh, the school that Jennifer attended brought in counselors and psychologists for the kids and staff, which they utilized. People actually were talking wow. about it. Yeah. Eventually, the school also adopted a policy reminding students to not walk alone through a plaque that was put up that said, Remember Jenny, 
don't walk alone. And I think it's also important to note that this is taking place during stranger danger. Yeah. So the fact that the school was like, we gotta make this like a thing so no one's walking alone, like makes a lot of sense. I don't know that that necessarily would happen now. I don't think so. Yeah. The searching continued until Thursday morning at 11 when Jennifer's naked and badly deposing remains were found by horseback riders, again, in that orange and pine tree grove in Hernando County. Wow. The level of decomp, this is sad and also skip ahead 15 seconds if you don't want to hear this the level of decomposition was so advanced that the medical examiner was unable to confirm if she had been sexually assaulted however since she was found naked it is quite possible that she was sexually assaulted it was like more advanced than what it should have been for that amount of time it was just so i mean she was out in the elements for like a week and even though it's february in florida like like i had kind of joked about in the beginning it's not that cold It's not that cold. There was no notes on if the decomp was due to, like, also animals. I was wondering, or bugs, or all of it. Didn't make any note Mm -hmm. to that, so I don't know. But again, the fact that she was found unclothed, it was very, they were like, we're pretty sure this is what happened. Um, And they also then thought the crime had high likelihood of being sexually motivated. Yeah. It was determined that she had died from blunt force trauma to the head, most likely shortly after she was abducted. Mm. There was no physical evidence at the scene, mostly due to the heavy rains the night before. However, the location was so secluded that police believed someone from the local community was behind this, as an outsider would not have been able to find this place. So they were like, it has to be someone from someone the past. knows her. Yeah. yeah. Or knows the area. Sure. Because it was so secluded. Shocked, sickened, and full of grief, Jennifer's family held a funeral mass where over 800 people attended. She was so loved Mm, by people in her community. So the police initially had about six suspects, but all of them took polygraphs and passed them. And while polygraphs are not a good indicator of guilt, because they are extremely problematic, and also they're inadmissible in court, they fail all the time, the police had no other suspicions, uh, or no other suspects, um, on their list, and they had no reason to hold them after they, they passed the polygraph. Months began to go by, and the case starts to run cold. The police update the description of the truck, but no viable leads come in. Jennifer's parents cap the reward at $20,000, hoping that maybe someone with information will come forward. It's a lot of money today. It's a lot of money. So they, they hoped that if somebody with information was like hoping that the reward would grow, that yeah. now that it was capped, they would actually come forward with, sure. with information, which no one ever did. Uh, in 1994, Jennifer's case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, and while the local police had over 200 tips come in, None of them led to anything. None. So two years later, in January of 1995, Jennifer's teal backpack and clarinet case were found in a scrap metal and trash yard in Spring Hill, Florida, which is about 12 miles west of where her body was found. So her body was found like 10 miles north of where she lived, and so this was found then 12 miles west of where her body was. The police were able to pull a partial print, but it didn't match in any of their databases. The case was officially declared cold in 2001, but police were still working on it like behind the scenes. They had three strong suspects, two of which did not pan out, and the third had no physical evidence to tie him to the scene, but he had committed a crime wildly similar to Jennifer's just a year before, which we will get into in a minute. In June of 2013, police received a tip that the blue truck was in um, a lake called Lake Jovita. They drugged the lake for two days and they found nothing. Jennifer's case would go cold for 30 years. Oh, this is fresh that something happened. Until 10 days ago. Oh, Mallory, you are hot <laughs> on the case. 
you heard it here first. People have not really heard it. I read it first. I heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, until 10 days ago. What? When DNA evidence to a different case, the one that I had mentioned earlier, finally resulted in an arrest of Jennifer's killer. 13 months before Jennifer's abduction, assault, and murder, a 17-year-old girl at another school not far from Dade City hopped on a bus headed for her home. She was also an honor roll student, and she played in track and field. When she got off uh, her bus, she was abducted and led to an abandoned house in... I have no idea how to pronounce this Floridian name. Okay. I'm going to try my best. You can also hear Arlo in the background, so sorry for everyone listening. She was led to an abandoned house south of Masser, Masser, wow, Masseripatown? Okay. I don't know. I don't either. Please email me if you know how to pronounce that. 17 miles east of where Jennifer lived. So this town that I can't pronounce is 17 miles east of where Jennifer was, where um, this girl was sexually assaulted beaten, and left for dead. Mm. Her skull had been hit so hard with a blunt object that it crushed inward as she lost part of her brain. She was found in a pool of blood by her family a few hours later when they realized she was missing. Mm. So the the only reason she survived, she survived. Oh, yeah, she's I alive. I just assumed she died. Nope, she's alive, which is why I don't know her name, which is good. I would not release her name. Sure. But yeah, she's, she ultimately survived. She's paralyzed on the left her left side due to her injuries. But wow. she was found because her, her family immediately started looking for her. Not that Jennifer did it. I mean, they did. No, but, but um, she was They were able to luckier. find her. Yeah. I mean, Jennifer was in a really remote place. She ultimately survived, like I said. Her case also went unsolved for 22 years until new DNA testing became available. Familial DNA technology has solved numerous crimes by this point, including the Golden State Killer, and in 2015, it was just becoming popular. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement Specialists ran the DNA from semen found on on the unnamed victim Mm -hmm. who survived, Mm -hmm. um, and it led them to uh, somebody named Jeffrey Crumb II. They pulled samples from Crumb II's father, (laughs) grandfather, and brother, and it was a direct match to his father, Jeffrey Crumb, no. which was one of the three main suspects that they suspected, but they didn't have any evidence tied to him. <sighs> mm-hmm. There is a quote that says the odds of finding another match are 7.7 nonillion, a number with 30 zeros. Okay. It was him. It it's, was him. It's him. It's him. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Crumb, uh, like I said, was also the top suspect in Jennifer Odom's case. But because they had no physical evidence tying him to her, they couldn't do it. Police won't release the details around his indictment now. So they so they caught him for this girl, uh, the girl that survived. Um, he was charged in 2019 for the abduction, rape, and attempted murder of the 1992 case of God. the unnamed uh, survivor. Yeah, he was given two life sentences in prison for Jennifer's case. Police aren't releasing a ton of details around his indictment, but it, it appears that there was some dna that they had that is they're tying it to to him Mm -hmm. but they won't they won't tell us and which is fine what it was yeah like we it's fine i believe you he still has to stand trial for it uh for jennifer the state attorney bill gladson reported that they are pursuing the death penalty for her murder jeffrey crumb was he's been in and out of prison he was convicted in 1981 of robbery and then 1985 of sexual battery. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Police think he has committed more crimes than he's been convicted of. Uh huh. So the Hernando Sheriff Office said they received an anonymous tip leading them to believe that there are more people who have not come forward who know more about Crumb's connection to mm-hmm. this crime. So after 30 years, 
10 days ago, Jennifer Odom's case was finally solved. Hi, listener. Quick uh, update from Mallory, future Mallory. I am up, or I'm editing this episode, and unfortunately, our discussion, there was two things happening in our discussion, and this is, we were sharing, we're sharing a microphone, Sheree and I, in this interview, and you can really hear, especially in this episode, how the microphone was struggling to pick up some of what either one of us was saying. And so there's parts where I'm really quiet. I'm so quiet in some of the, some of the little sections that it sounds like I'm like mispronouncing words. And that's because Sheree and I are using one mic. I'm brand new to this, so I had no idea that I needed a second mic. I thought, oh, one mic will be fine. And it's not. So our discussion ended up being either really, really quiet because we had, at this point, we had recorded a couple episodes. And so we were, we were really comfortable. And I think we had moved too far away. We kind of like settled into our chairs. And we were a bit too far away from the mic. So our discussion either got very, very quiet or it was um, really screechy because we're like, you know, talking loudly or like laughing or, or whatever. And so the mic had a really tough time kind of regulating that. So unfortunately, I, I spent the last hour and 15 minutes trying to piece together little bits of our discussion that were like within the right volume range. And honestly, I am hot. It's like 90 degrees in my house. I'm hot. I'm sweaty. I've been at this for an hour and a half. And I just decided, you know what? Better luck next time. Shuri and I will have many more episodes together. Um, our discussion really just centered on kind of exploring our feelings around the death penalty, especially as therapists, exploring our feeling around the humanity or the humanness of murder and anger and rage. Um, and I wish that the audio had been better. And so I'm, I'm really sorry for that. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I am very glad that Jennifer's killer has been identified and hopefully will never hurt anyone ever again. I look forward to joining you all in about a week for our next story. And if you have a story that you would like me to cover, especially if it's lesser known, please, please, please go to the link on my Instagram at crossing tape pod. There's a link like in the bio and you can suggest a case through there. So please do so if you have one in mind that you'd like me to cover. Okay. See you soon. If you'd like to show your support for me and the podcast, please head over to Instagram and give us a follow. It's just at crossing tape pod. And if you would like to submit a request for me to cover a story, you can do so through the link in my bio on Instagram until next time. <laughs>